Well, we want to welcome you if you're uh, joining us on the live stream or if you're watching or listening to this uh, as a recording afterwards. We are actually in 1 Peter, a letter that was written to Christians living in what is modern-day Turkey, and it was written to encourage them in their faith. Uh, Last week, we looked at the first nine verses of the first chapter, which really answered the question, how do followers of Jesus live in a hostile culture? And Peter urges his readers to realize two things. First of all, that the various trials that come their way, this is mentioned in verse 6, actually don't weaken faith, but strengthen it. And then in verse 4, he urges them to remember that whatever troubles they face here on the earth in this life, eventually they're going to give way to an imperishable inheritance that they're going to possess in heaven. And understanding this brings hope. Hope is one of the themes that runs throughout 1 Peter. And that hope causes us to be able to embrace what verse 8 says, the King James translates it, joy unspeakable and full of glory. What a great way of translating that phrase. Now today we're going to look at the next section, verses 13 to 25. So why don't we begin by reading them together? First Peter chapter 1 verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, follow along. If not, uh, it's on the screen behind me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
The first nine verses asked the question or answered the question, how do followers of Jesus live in a hostile culture? But these verses, these 13 verses, answer a different question. How do the followers of Jesus live in a corrupt culture? And if ever we were in any doubt that this is not a relevant question for us today, perhaps these facts may change your mind. In a world where social media now allows us to identify in one of 58 different gender options, we surely know that the LGBTQ lobby is shaping our society. Did you know that five Canadian provinces and two territories now offer non-binary birth certificates that allow parents to designate their children differently to either male or female? And non-gender specific passports and driver's licenses are on the way. Since medical assisted death has been made legal in Canada since 2016, 3,700 people have died with a doctor's help, allowing physicians in direct contradiction of their Hippocratic oaths now to end life rather than improve or save it. It's only going to be a matter of time before enforced death becomes a reality for hopeless cases. Earlier this month, the CBC reported that 222 amateur sports coaches have been convicted of sex offences involving over 600 children going back two decades. 34 cases are before the courts this very moment. And it's alleged that's just the tip of the iceberg. On January the 22nd this year, the governor of New York ordered city landmarks to be lit up pink, celebrating new legislation to extend abortion access for any reason to now include the third trimester right up to the very moment of birth. And a week later, the governor of Virginia tried to go a step further, unsuccessfully as it happened, thank God, but he attempted it. Ironically, he's a former pediatric neurologist. Listen to what he said. If a mother is in labor, the infant would be delivered, kept comfortable, and resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And then, meaning if they did not, a discussion would ensue between the mother and physician. Now, although he left the implication of his words hanging in the air, many took it to mean that they were advocating just leaving an unwanted newly born baby to die, or they would deliberately intervene and kill him or her in the name of access to abortion. We live in a culture, brothers and sisters, that's morally corrupt, rotten to the core. And the question that First Peter raises and answers is, how do we, 
as followers of Jesus, live in a culture like that? Well, he tells us. He tells us in verses 14 and 15. First with a negative statement and then with a positive one. The first thing Peter says is, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That word conformed is an interesting word. It describes changing your dress according to the current fashion. Peter's first advice is don't change how you live just to be trendy. That's the negative statement. And here's the positive statement. Verse 15, he says, Be holy in all your conduct. Be set apart. Be distinct. Be different. Jim Caviezel, the actor who played Jesus in Passion of the Christ, once told a congregation, As Christians, we are not called to fit in, but to stand out. Jesus says his followers are salt and light. We swim against the current, not with it. We refuse to be swept along by the world's strong, negative, moral influence. And this is what this next section of 1 Peter is all about. The title of my message is Hope for Holiness. And we are going to see how Peter unpacks the why, the what, and the how of holy living. So let's begin with the why. The why of holiness. Look at verse 14. There the apostle tells us to be obedient children. In verse 15, he commands us to be like the one who called us. And in verse 17, He reminds us that God is our Father. The first reason that we are holy is because holiness is a family trait. It was February 1978, the 28th of February at 11.50 p.m. that I became a father for the first time. And when I saw... Our first son, Andrew, here he is over here, there he is. (laughs) I actually jumped back in shock, not because he was ugly, (laughs) but because he looked just like me. And the older our children get, and now our grandchildren It's amazing how you see family likenesses and family traits and family behavior, family strengths and family weaknesses cropping up in their lives. Andrew has his mum's clear thinking. Grace has Val's fearless nature. David has my sense of humor, as does Liam, our fourth grandchild. Simeon has Grandpa Miner's athletic ability. Didn't get that from our gene pool. (laughs) Chloe has her great-grandpa Fields' business acumen. Ezra has his mum and dad's brains. And so it goes on. Who they are 
is in their genes. And holiness is in ours. It's in our spiritual DNA. It's what God's family looks like. Be holy, our Father tells us, for I am holy. That's why we keep our marriage vows. That's why we don't abort inconvenient pregnancies. That's why we honor and care for aging parents. That's why we live in integrity. That's why we tell the truth. Not only do we follow Jesus, we look like Jesus as well. The first reason we are holy is because holiness is a family trait. Now look further. Look at verse 17. Here's the second reason. It says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear. The second reason we strive towards holiness is because we're all going to stand before the judge. Now, a minute ago, I said hope was one of Peter's themes. But standing before the judge is a little bit scary, eh? He's going to judge us according to our deeds. Well, don't worry. It's actually good news. You see, we don't stand before the judge to determine if we are saved or not. That's a finished issue if we've put our trust in Jesus Christ. John 5 verse 24 says this, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. How many of us here have heard the words and believed him who sent me, who sent Jesus? How many of us have put our trust in Jesus Christ? Give us a wave. There's, there's about 10% so far. Come on, church, give us a wave. That's right. The truth is that you guys can stand before the judge in confidence, knowing that you have passed from death to life. You've received Christ. You've been saved. Your sin is forgiven. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And absolutely no force in heaven or earth can erase it. And neither are we going to stand before the judge to be punished for our sin. You see, some Christians believe that God punishes them when they slip and when they fall. But Isaiah prophesied of Jesus Christ that the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. So we aren't going to be punished there for the sins that we have committed. In fact, it's a little bit misleading to say we'll stand before him who judges because straight away we think of a judicial judge in a court of law where we've done something wrong and where we're going to get a heavy punishment. The judge here is not the judge in a court of law. It's the judge at the games. And the only reason... Anyone stood before the judge at the games was to get a medal and receive a reward. And so when it says we are going to stand before the judge and be judged according to what we have done, 
It's actually good news because what it's talking about is there God will reward us for the way we have lived here on the earth. The Bible tells us there's a reward for secret devotion. There's a reward for acts of kindness. There's a reward for bearing up during persecution. There's a reward for caring for the poor. There's a reward for remaining faithful to the end. Christ rewards holy living. And that's the second incentive that Peter points out to holiness. But there's a third reason why we can live holy lives. This is verses 18 and 19. And it says there, because we were ransomed. Other versions better translate it, we were redeemed. Now the image that Peter's got in mind here is the marketplace. The slave market. Where people were bought and sold like chattels. Now sometimes a wealthy person would come along and they would buy up a whole string of slaves. But instead of taking them home and working them to death, they would purchase them and then let them go. When that happened, it was called redemption. And it describes being bought in order to be set free. And that's what Jesus did with you and me, folks. He's bought us in order to liberate us. And then Peter adds this wonderful truth. He says, unlike Roman slaves, we were redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with something much more precious. Let me read you what Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer, says. He says, it costs God more to redeem us than it did to create us. In the one there was but the speaking of a word. But in the other, there was the shedding of blood. The currency of our redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus poured out his life on the cross, when he shed his precious blood, that wasn't a deposit on our salvation, and it wasn't an installment towards our salvation, but it was the once for all, never to be repeated, totally adequate, completely sufficient, full price of our salvation and of our freedom. And this morning, church, you and I are, as the King James Version says, saved to the uttermost. We really are saved. Not because we are good enough to be saved, but because the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to save us. The blood of Jesus is more powerful to save than sin is to stain. And when we put our trust in the blood of Jesus, God takes us out of the kingdom of darkness, puts us into the kingdom of light, writes our names in the Lamb's book of life, gives us a new birth certificate, gives us a new identity, calls us his children, places us in his family, and there is no force in heaven or on earth that can change that. unless we walk out on God, but that's another story. We are safe and secure under the blood of Jesus. It's bought our salvation and it's bought our freedom. But freedom from what? Well, Peter tells us. It's from the futile ways 
handed down from our forefathers. We need no longer be slaves to sin or those weaknesses that have come down to us through our family line. Now, a minute ago, I talked about some of the, the, the family traits that, are, that we can see in our kids and our grandkids. But, you know, there's another side to that because we can look back through the generations and we can also see some weaknesses, some problems, what the Bible calls curses, futile ways, Peter describes them, wrong ways of living. And it's even from these that the blood of Jesus has redeemed us. If your grandfather was an adulterer and your dad was unfaithful to his wife, that doesn't mean that you have to be too because you were redeemed from that futile way of living. If your grandparents' marriage broke and your parents divorced, that doesn't mean your marriage is doomed too. Because we were redeemed from that way of thinking. If right the way down the generations there's been a spirit of poverty operating. It doesn't mean that you have to live in poverty too. It doesn't mean that you don't get a job that's commensurate with your ability it doesn't mean that you will never get ahead because the blood of Jesus Christ has ransomed us and redeemed us from every futile way handed down from our forefathers. And one of the things that means is that Christ takes us out from being under a curse and puts us in a place where we are under the blessing and the favor and the grace and the prosperity of God. And that's your birthright. The Bible says that's what holy living's all about. Well, that's the why. Now, let's come on and talk about the what. What does holiness look like? And like nothing else, this has been altered and twisted and changed and mangled from the original intent that God had. The what of holiness, point two. When a young man made application to the premier Bible school of his day, he asked the principal how he could grow in holiness. And this was the answer he got. Wear no colored clothes and get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. If you're really serious, you can no longer take warm baths or shave your beard, for that's to lie against the image of God. Well, that was some centuries ago. But actually, we are really not different today. I remember a, a number of years ago, being at a, in fact, it was a similar conference to what Ron and Mary are at right now. In the UK, it was smaller, and it was being hosted in a very conservative Christian hotel. Now, one of the guys there wanted to watch his soccer team play a match on the Sunday afternoon that was being televised. 
And so he switched the TV on, put his feet up, and settled down to enjoy the game. However, when the proprietor of the hotel discovered what was happening, he stormed in, and he was almost in tears of rage. And he said, that that television set, it's never been switched on in 20 years. And today, you have broken the Sabbath. For many people, holiness is legalism. It's keeping the rules. It's do's and don'ts, as this little piece of doggerel suggests. Rooty-toot, rooty-toot, we're the guys from the Institute. We don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. Now, maybe there's wisdom in some of those things. I'm not advocating drinking, chewing, or anything like that. But that is not the heart of holiness. In verses 14 and verse 22, Peter puts a more positive spin on things. He tells us, first of all, that holiness is about being obedient. Did you know obedience is the issue of the Scripture? It was Adam's disobedience that got us all in the mess we're in. It was the disobedience of Samson that cost him his eyesight and his life. It was the disobedience of Saul that cost him the crown. Paul says that the purpose of his ministry is to bring people into the obedience of faith. And in verse 2, Peter tells us that we were saved in order to be obedient. So holiness is much less about what we don't do, and it's much more about what we do do. Holiness is about obedience. Now look at verse 21. He says it's also about having a sincere love. Now that word sincere is is an interesting word. It means literally without wax. And back in Bible days, uh, crooked shopkeepers would take cracked pots and they would fill in the imperfections with wax and then sell them as perfect goods. Honest shopkeepers, though, would advertise the genuine article as sine sere. Latin for without wax, sincere. And sincere love is love that's genuine. Holiness is not playing at love. It's not pretending to care. It's actually doing it. 1 John 3.8 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Sincere love is your, is, is your good at my expense. It's your comfort instead of my convenience. It's me giving to you, not getting from you. I mentioned a few minutes ago that Gary's one of the interns in our program. But for health reasons, Gary can't go to India. But the other day he said to the class, listen guys, I can't go to India but I want to give each of you a gift so that you can go. You know, that's sincere 
love. That's the real deal. That's the genuine article. That's love without wax. Then in verse 22, Peter adds another aspect of holiness. He says it's also about having a pure heart. Now, a pure heart isn't a heart that never makes a mistake. But it's a heart that is not mixed in its affections. It's a heart that has a single focus. It's a heart that loves God with every fiber of its being and doesn't harbor a place for darkness or sin. You know, the great tragedies of the Bible were men and women who had divided hearts. So Samson had a zeal for God, but he had a zeal for foreign women too. Judas loved Jesus, but he loved money as well. Ananias loved the Lord, but they also liked to look good in front of the church and so misrepresented how generous they were being and lied to the Holy Spirit. David's prayer is a good one. He says, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Now that's hope for holiness. The why, the what, and now the how. How do we become holy? How do we live different? How do we swim against the current? How do our lives stand out? Well, it's not by trying harder or making more effort. Then it would be, we'd be without hope for holiness. But in verses 22 and 23, Peter reminds his readers that there truly is hope for holiness because... You have been born again, not with perishable seed, but with imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Holiness happens when we allow our born again nature to change us from the inside out. Holiness happens when the living word of God, the imperishable seed, Peter calls it, planted in our heart, is allowed to grow and grow and grow, unhindered, unresisted. And there's a natural process of transformation. Let me finish by telling you a story. It illustrates this well. Give the Word is an organization right here in the city that does what its name says. It gives away copies of the Bible to people. And one of their New Testaments happened to come into the possession of a lesbian couple who were married and living on Vancouver Island. They'd never had a Bible before, and so they decided to read it together. They started in the Gospels, and there they read all about Jesus and discovered things they'd never known. Not only did they read about Jesus, they actually met Jesus and they got saved just through reading the Word of God. After the Gospels, they got into Acts and they realized that shortly after his death, the church spread. Amazingly, there was an explosion of growth. And as they were reading, that imperishable Word 
that living and abiding, that imperishable seed, that living and abiding word was in their hearts growing all the time. After Acts, they came to Romans. And they hadn't gone very far in Romans before they realized what Paul was saying about people who were in a similar lifestyle to their own. And the more they read, the more the word grew, and the more it began to change their minds. Eventually, one of them said, according to this, we shouldn't be living as we are. And her partner said, that's right. So they made an agreement to separate. They got divorced. And now they're living as friends and fulfilled single women. Transformed by the living and abiding word of God. That's how holiness happens. So, what are our takeaways? What's our application? How can we respond to this message this morning? Three ways. First of all, holiness is about obedience. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit has put his finger this morning on areas in people's lives where they need to become obedient. It might be a wrong sexual involvement. might be an issue with money. It might be a broken relationship. It might be where forgiveness needs to be extended. But as I've been speaking, the Holy Spirit's the living and abiding word has knocked on the door of your heart and said, this needs to change. So I want to invite you this morning to surrender to that and to become obedient. Second application. Holiness is about being redeemed from the futile ways handed down from our forefathers. And maybe you've seen a negative pattern in your family life line. It might be a physical condition. It might be a destructive habit. It might be an area of bondage. might be an addiction like gambling or pornography or wrong sexual activity. But you needn't live like that. In fact, I was praying this morning. I was asking the Lord if there was any specific... Uh, needs that he wanted to touch in this area. And there were two, two things that I believe the Lord dropped into my heart. And the first was this, that I believe there's somebody here uh, and there, there is a history of miscarriage in your family. And you are really wondering, will this touch us? Will this be our experience? I believe the Lord wants to set you free of that and cut off that curse of miscarriage. The other area is mental illness. And, and I believe there's somebody here who sees a pattern of mental illness that's come down the generational line. And you've asked yourself the question, and it's a, it's a big concern to you. Will I become ill like my mother or grandmother or great-grandmother? And I believe the Lord wants to Minister freedom this morning and cut you off from that. And then thirdly and finally, 
The third application Peter talks about is being born again. You know, it's, it's 53 years this month. It could even actually be this very Sunday that I was born again. Young 14-year-old kid, invited to church by a friend. I went, I heard the gospel for the first time and gave my life to Jesus Christ. And that changed me completely, changed my life direction, changed my value system, changed what I held dear, changed what I did. And maybe you are here this morning and you know about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You know he was born, but you have never been born again. And I believe God wants to call you into that today. He wants you to receive Christ into your life. So that these weren't just words on a page for you, but this will be living reality as you are born again by the Holy Spirit. May God help us to do that so that these aren't words on a page, but truths in our life for his glory. Amen.